An unconfirmed uh, story is told that one day uh, the small child Thomas Edison came home from school and he gave a paper to his mother and he said to her, Mom, my teacher gave me this paper and she told me that only you are to read it. What does it say? Her eyes welled with tears as she read the letter out loud to her child. Your son is a genius. This school is too small for him and doesn't have good enough teachers to train him. Please teach him yourself. <laughs> Many years after Edison's mother had died, he became one of the greatest inventors of the century. One day he was going through a closet and he found that folded letter that his old teacher had written to his mother. He opened it and uh, the message written on the letter actually stated, Your son is mentally deficient. We cannot let him attend our school anymore. He is expelled. Edison became emotional, and he wrote this in his diary that day. Thomas A. Edison was a mentally deficient child whose mother turned him into the genius of the century. George Washington once stated, The greatest teacher I ever had was my mother. Abraham Lincoln agreed. He said, The greatest lessons I ever learned were at my mother's knees. Someone once stated, One mother achieves more than a hundred teachers. Another pointed out that mothers write on the hearts of their children what the world's rough hand cannot erase. And then someone said, just about the time a mother thinks her work is done, she becomes a grandmother. <laughs> you know, there are few things more powerful uh, in all of life than the influence of a mother. And that was certainly true in the life of Jesus. God used Mary as a huge source of inspiration and encouragement in the life of her son. And this morning what we want to do is kind of take a, a look at the familiar story of, of Christmas and, and the birth of Jesus through the fresh eyes of a mother, a young mother by the name of Mary. And what we learn from her life is that, uh, specifically we learn what it means to be a godly parent and generally what it means to be a godly person. Mary is the ideal model for what a mother and a, and a woman of God really looks like. And ever since the early church, and down really throughout history for the last 2,000 years, there are countless myths about Mary, countless legends about the person of Mary, a lot of folklore about her that even exists and continues on today. In fact, Mary has been venerated to the same level and even greater than her own son, Jesus Christ. For example, she has been called the Queen of Heaven. She's been called the Mother of the Saints. She's been called the Seat of Wisdom, the Spouse of the Holy Spirit, the Mediator between God and man. Pope Leo VIII declared, No one can go to the Father except through his mother, Mary. She's even considered the co-redeemer of humanity. Pope Benedict XV said it may it rightly be said that Mary redeemed the human race with Christ. Mariolatry, the worship of Mary, is on the rise today. I read uh, a while back uh, in Time Magazine, it reported this, and I quote, A grassroots revival of faith in the Virgin is taking place worldwide. Millions of worshipers are flocking to her shrines, many of them young people. Feminists, liberals, and activists have stepped forward with new interpretations of the Virgin's life and works. This has become the age of Marian 
pilgr- the Marian pilgrimage. The annual attendance at Mary's shrine in Lourdes, France in the past two years has jumped 10% to 5.5 million people. One-tenth of the faithful to Mary these days are 25 or younger. In Knock, Ireland, attendance at Mary's shrines has doubled since 1979 to 1.5 million people every single year. Fatima, uh, Portugal, uh, draws a steady 4.5 million pilgrims a year to worship Mary. There are some 300 Mary groups in the United States that exist across the U.S., publishing at least 30 newsletters, uh, uh, dozens of blogs, and holding a dozen conferences a year. Mary has been credited from everything from, for everything, from physical healing to the ending of communism back a few years ago. Why such an interest in Mary? Why this increased interest in her? One professor uh, put it this way. He says, there's been a tremendous amount of upsurge in goddess research today, and the feminine divinity is the antecedent to the male god. It's not unrelated that the Virgin Mary's popularity has also increased. Judeo-Christianity has been exclusively male, leaving a gap that cries out for a feminine god. That has led some to refer to the, the growing movement today as the, the cult of the virgin. And yet, what does the Bible say? <laughs> what do the scriptures teach us about Mary? Why go there? Because all the authentic material, all the truth that we know about Mary comes from the scriptures. And the Bible paints a very different uh, portrait of Mary. And with all the myths and with all the legends surrounding her, what God has revealed in his truth is sufficient. So what is a proper understanding, the proper view of Mary? Let's start with her background a little bit. As we look at the Christmas story this year, I think we really need to understand her perspective and her person and character. What we know about Mary is that she was from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Her genealogy is found in Luke chapter 3, and it traces it back 10 centuries, 1,000 years, all the way back uh, to King David. She lived in Nazareth. city north in uh, Galilee, a a northern city. Uh, Other than that, we really don't know a whole lot about her background. We don't know about her home life. And uh, up until the angel's visit, uh, Mary's life was going along about what you'd expect of a Jewish girl. She was engaged to a local carpenter by the name of Joseph, and she was looking forward to married life. Uh, And then Gabriel showed up. Luke chapter 1 verse 20 or verse 30 tells us, And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. (laughs) Dramatic words. A dramatic promise, a a dramatic declaration that this angel made to this young girl by the name of Mary. One Bible scholar put it this way. It's as if she had been congratulated as the grand winner of a contest that she had never entered. Mary found the angel's greeting puzzling and his presence frightening. What she heard next was the news every woman in Israel hoped to hear, that her child would be the Messiah, God's promised Savior. Her response to the angel that day reveals a godly woman. She had absolute trust, absolute faith in the Lord. Verse 38 of chapter 1 tells us this. She said, I am the Lord's servant. I'm God's slave. I'm his servant. May it be to me as you have said. What an attitude. What a heart. 
of response. The Bible tells us at least six things about Mary. Six things that really give us a fresh perspective on the Christmas story this year. Uh, first of all, we learn that Mary was a sorrowful woman. Actually, her, Mar her, her name Mary means uh, bitter. It means sorrow. You might remember last week we looked at the, the life of Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi's name, sweet, she changed to Mara or Mary. Uh, it means the same thing, bitterness. And like Naomi, we know that Mary is going to go through some tremendous bitter experiences in her life. And so while she had the unique and honored privilege of, of, of being the earthly mother to the very Son of God, from the very beginning, she was willing to carry and then to mother this child through some incredibly difficult situations and circumstances. In fact, the Bible tells us that a few days after his birth, she and Joseph were at the temple, and they were met by uh, two prophets, a prophet and a prophetess, Anna and Simeon. And both of these prophets recognized that Jesus was the Messiah, and they rejoiced, they thanked God for it. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, it's interesting that Simeon, this prophet, came up and he blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be uh, spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And then he turns and he adds some personal words to Mary. He says, and a sword will pierce your soul too. You know, those words may have, must have come up to her mind and, and been risen in her mind time and time again in the years to come. Why? Because motherhood is a painful privilege. It is a tough job. It's hard work. It's not at all easy. It is a high calling. There's an old saying that says God couldn't be everywhere, so he made moms. Well, I'm not sure that's theologically correct, but it does convey the right attitude toward motherhood that, that moms fill a place in our lives that no one else can. And God uses moms in a powerful way, in ways that no one else can. It's like the cartoon I once saw of a little boy. He was talking on the phone to his grandma one day. And he said, Grandma, Mom's out of town. And so it's me and Daddy and Tommy and Sarah and Fido. And, Fido, and we're all alone. We're all alone. I don't know if you've ever felt that way at your house, but at our house when kids were growing up, that's the way it often felt when mom was away. When Margie was gone and I was left with the four kids, it felt like we had been deserted on a mar and marooned on a deserted island. Motherhood is a high calling. And every mom knows that it's a lot more than just cooking and cleaning and carpooling. It involves nurture. It involves guidance. It involves building character in those kids. And as we've learned in recent years, our job doesn't end when the kids leave home. By the time uh, I was 29 and Margie was 28, we had four kids. Four kids before we were 30. People said, what are you thinking? Are you crazy? Four kids. By the time I'm 30, uh, people would ask, uh, you know, they'd really question that. And the best answer we gave was simply this. That, hey, we love kids. We love children. We want to have as many as we can. Margie actually wanted six. I wanted two. The great compromise, we ended up with four. But uh, basically, the great thing about having them young is that they're out of the house. By the time you're middle aged, by the time you're in your 40s and early 50s, they're gone. Not so, grasshopper. You know, that's not true. <laughs> a parent's job is never done. Never. Margie is learning in new ways what being a mom to adult children is all about and a grandmother. And she'll tell you that it's a whole lot easier in many ways when they were young and when they were little. 
Some of the biggest challenges we had is when our kids were in their 20s. But there's all the pains and all the pleasures of what that means in being a mom. We know that Mary was the only human that was present both at his birth and also at Christ's death. She saw him arrive as her baby son. Then she saw him suffer and die as her savior. Mary was a sorrowful woman, but she was also, number two, a blessed woman. Back, uh, back then, the ultimate dream of every Hebrew woman was maybe, just maybe, they would be the mom, the mother of the promised Messiah that had been promised a century, actually 10 centuries, 15 centuries earlier. And every young woman thought, maybe, just maybe, I would bear the Messiah. In Luke chapter 1, verse 42, her, her cousin uh, Elizabeth said this. She cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed among women are you, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. The Bible states that Mary was blessed among women, not above women. She wasn't the greatest. The Bible says she was blessed among women. She was simply chosen among them. That's what made her blessed. Luke chapter 1, verse 28 states that the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You have found favor. You have been blessed. Can you imagine an angel coming to you personally and basically announcing to you that you are a VIP in God's eyes. You are a highly favored. God is with you. Uh, you have found favor with God. Now that would blow you away. You'd think, wow, even come from an angel, you might have a hard time believing that. But listen, if you're a born-again believer today, if you're a child of God today, that's exactly how God sees you in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. Ephesians 1.7 tells us, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, that He lavished upon us in all wisdom and in all insight. It's because of His grace in Christ Jesus that God sees you just as He saw Mary, highly favored. God is with you. You find favor and have found favor with God Himself. So praise the Lord for the position that we have in him as children. We are blessed, just as Mary was blessed. Mary was a blessed woman, but also, not only that, she was an educated woman. Mary was no dummy. <laughs> we find in Luke chapter 1 that she quoted extensively from the Psalms. She knew the scriptures, up, down, backwards, and forwards. We, saw, we see also how Mary maintained a conversation with an angel. I don't know about you, but if an angel appeared to me, I think a lot like the Apostle John, I would have fallen on my face in the dirt with my face down and, and felt like a dead man in his presence. Not Mary. She was eloquent. She was expressive. She was articulate. She was an educated woman. Fourthly, the Bible tells us that Mary was a godly woman. She never magnified, she never exalted herself above her son. She always lifted him up, his person, his work, his ministry, his life. She's a model of humility. And we never find her subtracting anything from her son and his ministry. In fact, her, her motto of responsiveness to God in virtue and in service really ought to be the motto of every single one of us. In verse 38 again, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I'm a servant. I'm God's slave. I'll do whatever he wants me to do. She was a godly woman. 
Like Mary, we magnify and exalt no one but Jesus. We don't pray to anyone else but Jesus. We ultimately serve no one but Jesus. We don't love anyone any more supremely than we do Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Praise God for that. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those who are on earth and heaven under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord the glory of God the Father. It's all about Jesus. And that was true in Mary's heart and life as well. And so although uh, Mary is a godly woman, listen, number four, Mary was a normal human woman, okay? Uh, She was a a normal sinner, just like all of us, and she was in need of a Savior, just like each and every one of us. How do we know that? Well, when you study the Gospels, you discover, first of all, on more than one occasion, Mary was rebuked. She was rebuked. She was mildly rebuked by Jesus on at least two occasions. On one occasion, when he was 12 years old, in the temple. He basically said, Mom, where'd you think I would be? (laughs) Secondly, at the wedding in Cana. Both times, he had to lovingly correct Mary. Why? Because she wasn't perfect even by her own son's account. And probably for the first time in his life, Jesus referred to her as woman at the uh, wedding at Cana. Not mother, he called her woman. Now that might sound kind of disrespectful, but you need to understand the context. You see, the wedding at Cana marked the very beginning of Christ's ministry. So the relationship from that point on went from a mother-son relationship to a sinner-savior relationship. From that day on, she was a follower of her son. She was a follower of Jesus from that point on. The relationship changed dramatically. From that point on, she never told him what to do. She never gave him any motherly advice. She never gave him any maternal direction. Unlike maybe every other Jewish mother down throughout history, but she didn't do it. She was a follower of Christ. Secondly, we know she was a normal sinner just like all of us because she offered sacrifices. Back in Luke chapter 2, verse 24, we find Mary offering doves at the temple temple, in in order to cover her sin. In Leviticus chapter 12, the Old Testament law required that a lamb be sacrificed every year for your sin. But the poor, if they couldn't afford a lamb, would bring a dove. Well, Mary was poor. The Bible says that she brought a dove to, 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 to substitute for that lamb, but to pay for her sin. And so Mary came to the temple basically to be restored to the Lord and basically to be cleansed with an offering for her sin. She was a normal human woman, just like all of us had a sin nature. So we know that Mary, like all humans, needed and required a sacrifice. Her son would become the ultimate sacrifice, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, including hers. Mary needed a mediator. between herself and God, just like everybody else. In fact, James, or 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, makes it crystal clear. There is one God and one mediator, not two, not three, not five, one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ. One mediator. And so listen, our access to the throne of grace is not through Mary, and it's not through a priest, and it's not through a saint. As our high priest, Jesus alone is our mediator. Hebrews 4.15 spells it out. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, and yet without sin. 
And I love this. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we, we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God for the mediator that we have in Christ Jesus alone and no one else. No one comes to the Father but through me, Jesus said. On top of that, she admitted her own need for a Savior. Mary herself acknowledged that. In Luke chapter 1, verse 47, she declares, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. My Savior. She knew she wasn't perfect. <laughs> she knew she needed a Savior just like you and me. One theologian, Jeff Neff, points out, as the first to welcome Christ into her life, think about it, she was the first. Mary stands at the, long, at the head of a long line of saved sinners, justified by faith alone through Christ alone. Finally, we learn that Mary was a normal wife with a family. The idea that Mary lived with Joseph in kind of a brother-sister relationship, basically, and had no other children but Jesus, that's simply not taught in the scriptures at all. Her perpetual virginity is not at all supported by what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible tells us repeatedly that she had several children. For example, in Matthew chapter 13, the crowds were asking this question, is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary, or is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? That's at least seven kids. She had at least seven children. She might have had more. Maybe she had eight, ten, or twelve. I don't know. But she had at least seven, according to what the Bible says. So the perpetual virginity of Mary is something important to our Catholic friends. Why? Because the Catholic view, and, and again, I'm not putting them down for this, but it's just not biblical. The Catholic view of sex is that it's dirty, rotten, and sinful, even in the context of marriage. The sexual relationship in the context of of uh, what the scriptures tell us, marital love is something that God designed as pure and beautiful and honorable. It's a gift by God to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Several lessons that we draw from the life and the person of Mary. First of all, number one, God's plans often involve extraordinary events in ordinary people. Mary was an ordinary person. You and I are ordinary people, but God often uh, does extraordinary things through ordinary people. God uses us. He blesses us, just like he used and blessed Mary. Isaiah 64, 8, my, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. God uses us. He molds us. He shapes us according to his will. Jeff Neff points this out in his book. In our time... When mere amusement and comfort are what we dream of, we need models for our inevitable date with discomfort, disease, distress, and death. Mary is such a model. James 1.12 adds this, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. I don't know what you're going through today. I don't know what you're facing today. But know that God is always in the process of using you and refining you and blessing you and conforming you into the image of his son, just like he did with Mary and with so many others in the New Testament that we know of. He never gives up on our growth. He's committed to us. Especially he uses our pain. And so James tells us, consider it all joy, 
my brethren. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I need more endurance in my life. <laughs> but I don't want to pray for that because then God will give me more, more pain. But that's okay. It produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. Why? So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Embrace it. Consider it with all joy. God, you brought this into my life. I don't like it. It's painful. Nobody likes pain. This hurts. But God, I know that you are in it. And you're going to work in and through it. For my good and for your glory. Second application I think we can draw from the life and the person of Mary is God's plans also involve using us to mold and shape others. We're instruments in his hands to make a difference in the hearts and lives of those around us. You know, the, the only scene that we have of the early mother-son relationship between Mary and Jesus is found in, in Luke chapter 2. It tells us this in verse 40. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. The fact that Mary and Joseph took Jesus to God's house illustrates a strong religious heritage that they, that they instilled within his life at the, at the very beginning, early in their home life. They made him a part of the tabernacle, made him a part of the, the temple life. Joseph and Mary were there during his formative years as parents. They were nurturing him and loving him and teaching him. Luke uh, tells us that when he was 12 years old one day in the temple, it says in chapter 2, verse 46, that he was sitting in the midst of the teachers. The older teachers were there. They were both listening to, he was both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Where did he get such wisdom? He's 12 years old. He's, he's not even a teenager yet. You know, who taught him? The Bible says that Jesus voluntarily limited himself as God and had to learn obedience just like everybody else. Who taught him? His parents, his mom, his dad, Joseph and Mary taught him. Luke chapter 2 verse 51 tells us he continued in subjection to them. He learned obedience from them. His mother treasured all these things in her heart and Jesus kept increasing in four ways, in wisdom, in stature, and in favor with God, and in favor with man. Mentally, physically, spiritually, socially, Jesus grew up in a balanced way. Why? Because of his parents. He had a godly father and a godly mother. The influence of a parent and the spiritual life of a child can never be overestimated. Never. It's not the primary job of the Sunday school teacher. It's not the primary job of the youth pastor or the church itself. We all serve to supplement what you ought to already be doing at home with your children. And as important as it is to, to, to plug your children into our Sunday school program and bring them into the church body and plug your youth into our, our youth program and make sure they're growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, as much as that is so important to be a part of the body life of any church, listen, the ultimate responsibility for the welfare of your spiritual children as they, as they grow up is yours. That's why we find in Deuteronomy chapter 6 the command, you shall love the Lord your God, 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I commanded you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontals on your forehead. And you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. It ought to permeate everything about your home life. Honoring Christ and raising up our children in the instruction and the admonition of the Lord. And then involving them in the body life of the church. That's more important than sports. That's more important than their, their school education even. It's their spiritual life. Is that a priority? May we be found faithful in the job of being melted and molded and filled and used by God like Mary for his purposes and for his glory. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you this morning.